In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And uh, we'll continue with our hymn of the month, uh, 707. statute still Oh that my God would grant me grace to know and do his will Order my footsteps by thy word and make my heart sincere Let sin have no dominion, Lord, but keep my conscience clear. Assist my soul too apt to stray, a stricter watch to keep. And should I have forget thy way, Restore thy wandering sheep. Make me to walk in thy commands. Tis a delightful road. Nor let my head or heart or hands offend against some God. We'll continue with the uh, catechism and Bible memory work just combined there. So, to bishops, pastors, and preachers, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Titus 1.9. And there's only one Titus. It's not, I don't know why it says first Titus. But it's just Titus 1.9. There's not a second Titus. Uh-huh. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And, uh... Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, 
that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, the kids can go off to Sunday school. Um, on that hymn of the month, uh, what did I talk about last week? I talked about like old American hymns last week. Uh, that English written hymns are, um, I think, a little different than the the German translate hymns that the Lutherans have always uh, really enjoyed and and held on to. Um, but we've also really incorporated some of these great American hymns into our hymnal as well. Uh, this one by Isaac Watts. Uh, so, so this is uh, really, really good stuff. Um, yeah, I didn't really have anything to say about the hymn, hymn today. But uh, does everyone know this hymn? Is this a familiar one? Yeah, it's pretty familiar. Uh, I think even if you haven't sung it in church before this is just one of those old american hymns that kind of everyone knows if they kind of grew up in church and sometimes people will call these like methodist or baptist hymns because they kind of come out of that tradition in so far as the people who wrote them were baptist or methodist back in the 19th century but um that doesn't that doesn't mean that they're wrong as in, as long as they're they're good doctrine right so um this is there's nothing wrong with the doctrine here in fact this is very lutheran in some sense um like the second stanza uh order my footsteps by thy word keep my heart sincere that let sin have no dominion lord uh keep my conscience clear i mean that uh that's the lutheran thing is clear consciences that's what luther was uh fighting for against the the catholics so um yeah, it's a it's a good hymn, and uh, I uh, personally some of my favorite hymns are kind of from this tradition. Um, probably in my top three top yeah probably top three favorite hymns is How Firm a Foundation, which is of that same vein, just an old American hymn that uh, you just kind of can't beat. So, um, and I love some of those tunes as well. All right. Uh, with that said, the catechism, and this kind of goes along with what we were just saying about the hymn, that – so this is, again, from the Table of Duties, which the Table of Duties is an appendix of Bible verses in Luther's small catechism, which says uh, – goes through the different vocations that someone might have, the different callings in life that someone might have, and says here's the Bible verses that relate – or here's some Bible verses, one or two – that relate to that vocation to tell you how to help you know how to live life and uh in that way it's very very helpful and even even if you don't personally have that vocation you also know what to look for in others right you know what to expect from other christians so uh you know none of none of you are pastors i'm the pastor in the i'm the only pastor in the room but this tells you what to expect from me, right? So to, to bishops, pastors, and preachers. Um, and these Bible verses come from the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And so uh, Titus 1.9 um, is another requirement of pastors. He must firmly hold the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, there's a couple of aspects to this. 
um, that are really important. So, first of all, there have been times in the church, um, and really in the in the in our church body in the 80s and 90s, um, there was what was called the church growth movement going on, uh, which it the church growth movement wasn't just a Lutheran thing. It it was happening across America. Lutherans actually had it a little bit later than everyone else because Lutherans don't like change, so we're always kind of 20 years behind the trend, <laughs> which is fine. Um, but the church growth movement uh, was kind of an evangelism as, as, uh, as attendance and, and natural church growth just by rate of you know, birth rates basically started to decline. Um, in, in the 80s and, and 90s, and as less and as the world started becoming a little more and more secular, uh, church numbers started to decline. And I think the, the peak of church attendance in America was in the 70s, uh, if, I, if I remember that chart correctly in my head. P- the church, people in the church started saying, we gotta, um, we got to do more evangelism, right? we got to reach more people. And that started with really basic things that I don't think were that bad. It started with things like, um, hey, you should make sure you have a sign telling people where the restrooms are so that if visitors come, uh, they're not getting lost in your building. You know, like Basic stuff like how to be more welcoming, like you should have a, visit, a visitor team that welcomes people, stuff like that. And so that is all fine, um, but the church growth movement kind of evolved into a – uh, theological movement, if you will, that said, well, what, what we would what we would know this term might be uh, familiar to you as like a seeker-sensitive approach, where everything is about the visitor, and we don't want to do anything to offend anyone who might come in our doors, and so uh, we need to be sensitive to everything that the seeker, seeker-sensitive, uh, would whatever their uh, you know proclivities are. And that kind of developed theologically into this um, don't talk too much about doctrine type of mindset. And because uh, if you talk about doctrine, th- there are things that are doctrinal that are offensive. So um, in our day and age, that would be like back in the 80s and 90s, this wasn't probably even that offensive. But um, in our day and age, this, this would be something like uh, talking about how homosexuality is a sin. Um, or, or something like that. Uh, but even, even, even back then, uh, they said just don't, don't worry too much about doctrine. Talk, give life advice, right? Give, um, t- tell people, uh, you know, give them practical things. You know, just, just be very positive. Don't be negative about anything. Don't kind of preach the law, if you will. Um, you know, we need to be very, just very positive and very practical. And you can see that that really stuck around in probably like the non-denominational churches mostly. So if you, when you're driving down Goodman and you turn on to Davidson, you, I always like to see what compels sermon series is. <laughs> I like to see how, you know, what, what we're talking about. And, uh, you know, their, their one right now is like a, a it's a, some football theme. It's like playbook. And it's about... Uh, advice for relationships, um, which, you know, is not a biblical theme. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm sure that there's, Bi- there's Bible verses 
that you know apply to relationships, but that's not um, like play uh, a playbook for relationships is just not a biblical theme, right? Um, and I so whenever I preach, just call me old school, I guess. Um, I try and take a topic that is from the text and preach the text, right? So, um, I, so today is Luke 16, uh, the parable of the unjust steward, and so we're going to talk about stewardship uh, because that's what the text is talking about. So, um, anyway, this is all kind of a the the point of this is that there has been this idea in the church before. Um, and, and probably not just the church growth movement, other times as well, where doctrine was not important, right? The idea that doctrine really doesn't matter that much. And uh, we should focus on more practical things. We should focus on giving kind of, you know, practical life advice. And when you read Titus 1.9, this is a very different message that we hear, Right? The pastor must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, right? So this is – and this is referring – then you find out what that trustworthy message as it has been taught. So obviously that's the gospel, but as it has been taught uh, is this um, – that this has been passed down. Jesus taught his disciples, right, and the disciples are passing it down to the other uh, future pastors, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. So this is the referent to the trustworthy message that has been taught. Sound doctrine uh, is what the pastor ha- has to hold on to. And then refute those who oppose it. Okay. So, And then this is the other big thing. Is that I think in our minds, maybe because of the church growth movement, um, maybe just because of kind of enlightenment thinking i'm not i'm not really sure in our minds when we hear the term doctrine i think and i'm guilty of this too i think of something that is dead right at that that doesn't really have a life to it that it's just doctrine is just facts on a sheet right it's just it's what's in the book um but it's not really active well that's not how paul talks about it doctrine actually does something right uh Doctrine encourage it. This is doctrine is what the pastor uses to encourage his people, and what he uses to refute false teachers. So uh, the doctrine of the church, that is, you know, what we believe, um, to preach doctrine is to to actually preach comfort. And uh, th- this is kind of an amazing thing that um, the the pastor I had. My fourth year of seminary, he was probably the best guy in the LCMS. At, he probably is the best guy in the LCMS at this. Um, is that Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, David Peterson? Uh, he really understands. I, I loved listening to him preach because he, he would always preach doctrine. Like it sounded like he was kind of teaching and um, saying, you know, that very much like this is the the lesson that the Bible is teaching here. And even though there there wasn't always like a lot of great metaphors or stories or um, even maybe application in the same way that I that I like to preach application, uh, I would always 
still be comforted by the fact that he was giving me truth to live by, right? Because when you can live by truth, uh, it is a, a, a better life. And um, anyway, that, so that's the doctrine. Uh, that that we the doc, doctrine is important, and doctrine is alive, right? Doctrine is not dead. Doctrine actually uh, does something. So um, this is why. This, this is also why, to me, it's kind of frustrating when people are like, well, it doesn't really matter if you're Lutheran or if you're, if you're Methodist or if you're Baptist, right? They're all kind of the same. Um, maybe they just differ a little bit on some doctrinal things here or there. But that's just theological hair splitting. That, that's completely contrary to how Paul talks about doctrine. Um, that a little, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you get, if you get these things wrong, that's actually... Again, doc, even false doctrine is alive, and uh, it can cause problems. And so, um, I'm not just Lutheran because I was, you know, born into it or something. Um, I'm Lutheran because I've studied the doctrine and because I believe that it lines up with Scripture. So, uh, anyway, that I could go on and on, but we'll stop there. Yeah. 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 I um, I think this is trickling down into the churches, too, for sure. But uh, at seminary. Fifty percent of my class was converts, adult like adult converts to Lutheranism. Um, And I think and, and that's mainly because a lot of guys, the way they get into Lutheran theology is because they're studying theology and then they realize that oh, what the Lutherans say makes a lot of sense with what the Bible says, and um, and so that happens, and that's where a lot of our pastors are coming from. Um, I'm kind of a convert. I my parents converted when I was five, and then I was kind of in and out of the church in high school, and then and then back into the church uh, after that. So. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of a lot of pastors out there that are, are converts, and I think that's trickling down into the churches too. Um, well, f- just for instance, I've had more, I've done more adult catechesis, adult catechism than I have uh, infant baptisms while I've been here. So, um, and and more people who have joined here are have have been adults than than uh, born into the church. So. Uh, that's just, it's kind of, that's how, that's how the early church was too. Um, that, that more people were being converted more adults were being converted from the outside than were being born naturally into the church. So, uh, which is fine. It's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, obviously we want people to be born into the church as well, but all right, where am I at? Here we go. Jonah, picking back up in the book of Jonah. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't uh, back back in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, there was not a need for uh, outward evangelism, right? Which I would say is actually a mistake. That uh, and 
it would be hard to be in that situation in the sense that basically everyone you knew already went to church, so who are you going to evangelize? But um, even so, I mean, there's probably like foreign missions that the church was more involved in. But but even so, there have always been some sector of, of non-Christians out there. And it's the it's always been the church's duty to reach those lost souls. And um, I mean, I don't want to cast judgments on the past, but uh, that that to so to me, it's actually a a problem now because uh, teaching about evangelism is more difficult in a in a time when it's like, oh, this hasn't really been like done in a long time, right? This doesn't need to be done. Where like, uh, it, it kind of seems to me that all of the sudden um, we found ourselves dropped in this position where it's like, oh, we really need to think about evangelism and it's not really been thought about before. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about this individual church. I'm talking about the church at large. Um, so when that, when that reporter article came out about the revitalization that we're doing here, I had a lot of pastors call me from around the synod, and they were like, and they were older pastors, um, and they were they were basically like, yeah, what do we do? We've never, <laughs> we've never had to think about this before. There's just always been people here. And now all of a sudden there's not people here, and what do we do? And um, so that to me that that's kind of like, well, looking back, we should have never stopped evangelism. <laughs> we should always be thinking evangelistically, um, because that's what. I mean, in in one sense, I think the Bible is all about mission, because it is the mission of God to send His Son to save the lost. And we're joining him on that mission still today. So, uh, anyhow. All right. Does anyone remember where we left off in Jonah? Uh, so I, ta- I talked about uh, I talked about dinosaurs. I know that. Um, yeah. Um, well, we'll pick back up. I think that was like the last thing I talked about. So. When, so so to catch to catch everyone up, uh, if people weren't here, um, Jonah, you probably know the story pretty well. So the book the book of Jonah is between Obadiah and Micah, if you're looking for it in the uh, Minor Prophets. And um, the people of Nineveh are an evil, wicked people, and uh, Jonah is called to uh, go and preach to them, and the people need. Uh, preaching to uh, the people need to hear the law of God, and this is uh, so the thing I talked about last week a little bit was that really the need for the law that we're we're so afraid to preach God's wrath and God's law today, and I talked about that in the sermon last week too, which is why I was talking about it in Bible study. But um, the the wrath of God is necessary to to bring people to repentance. Right? If we don't have the wrath of God, if we don't have God's anger against sin, then the gospel is meaningless. Right? What do we need to be saved from? 
And so uh, Jonah is called to go preach the, the wrath of God to the people of Nineveh whose hearts are cold and need to be turned around. And uh, he uh, decides to sin and flees from the Lord, which of uh, course is not going to work because you cannot cover up your sin from God. And this is why I'm an advocate. I, I think I said this last week. This is why I'm a big advocate of private confession and absolution because covered sin never turns out well, right? Sin, covered sin is always going to get uncovered eventually anyway. If, if not in this life, although probably in this life, it will be uncovered on the last day. And the way to deal with sin is not to try and hide it more and more because as the whole story of Jonah teaches us, you can't hide from God. The way to deal with uh, sin is to confess it and to uncover it before God. And that, that's Psalm 32. Uh, Blessed is the man uh, who confesses his transgression. And so um, anyway, you know the story. He gets on the ship to go to Tarshish and uh, the Lord sends a violent storm onto the sea. And uh, during all of this, there's all these uh, pagan people on the ship, all these, uh, all the seamen who are praying to all their gods. And Jonah is uh, very, I think I said he's very reminiscent of our modern day kind of depressive person who, uh, you know, doesn't get out of bed in the morning and sits and watches Netflix all day. Uh, he sits, he just, he tries to sleep it off. Right, he knows the world is going to uh, to hell around him. I mean, he's like, there's a violent storm, um, and he just tries to sleep and pretend like it doesn't happen. Uh, so they go and get him up, and he tells them who he is, and uh, he he confesses the true God. He says, "I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord who made the God of heaven of heaven who made the sea and dry land." Uh, he confesses the the name of Yahweh and. Um, they say, well, pray to him. <laughs> you know, maybe he can do something. And so they're still kind of pagan at this point. Um, but uh, then Jonah tells them, well, you're going to have to throw me into the sea. And this is actually the point of their conversion. So I, the, the, the best thing about the book of Jonah is just that Jonah does everything wrong. And yet God uses him to... Uh, make things right right what man means for evil god god works out for good and it all it always makes me feel a lot better about my ministry that you know even if i completely screw up god can still work it out for good right um i mean i'm not depending on that but this is uh this is good because um you can do you can the god is is really good at at taking our ability to wander off the path and and somehow getting us back into the right place at the end. So, um, uh, in spite of, the, so they try and deny it. They try and, and and row harder, and it doesn't work. And they, they eventually throw Jonah into the sea, um, and then they're converted, right? So through this uh, sacrifice of Jonah, uh, the the men are converted. Which that's also, I mean, that's a biblical theme that the sacrifice is necessary for the turning of hearts. Right, and of course that points us to Christ, uh, whose sacrifice is necessary for the turning of hearts. And then Christ Himself will make that um, 
comparison in Matthew 12, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. So um, then, uh, okay, so that kind of catches us up. And what I ended on last week was this, this is just a pet peeve of mine, but um, the text says that the Lord had prepared a great fish. Okay, it does not say a well. And the reason I'm insisting on this is because I think so often we try and uh, we've, we've kind of accepted the position of the Enlightenment and rationalist uh, mindset that says we have to be able to prove everything scientifically for it to be true. And the fact of the matter is the, Bi- the Bible does not always line up with science. Uh, the Bible uh, speaks of miracles of God, where he does things that are unscientific. He makes the sun stand still for Joshua. Uh, he uh, you know, heals people by touching the fringe of their garment. He, he does all sorts of – and ultimately he rises from the dead. And so it doesn't always line up with science. And um, I think that there can be some good thing. So there's, there's a whole field of study called creation science, which is trying to kind of show how science and the Bible aren't completely opposed to one another, which is fine uh, to a degree. And the, the, the most popular uh, organization that does this is Answers in Genesis run by Ken Ham, if you've heard of that. They're the ones that have the museum up in Kentucky, Creation Museum. Um, and then they have the uh, big – they built the big Noah's Ark uh, museum that you can go to. So um, anyway, it's fine. I mean I, I don't have any huge problem with that. But um, they try and – they try and kind of like prove that these things could happen. And I think – I don't know if Answers in Genesis has done this or whatever, but I've always heard people say, oh, well, there's like this – species of well that we think existed that could actually be able to do this and swallow uh, Jonah and stuff. And I, I I just don't like that because I'd rather just say, well, God said this happened and God made it happen. You know, that's a, God pre- prepared a fish. Yeah, God prepared a fish for this to happen. Why couldn't this just be a completely totally unique fish? Yeah, well, and if anything, the great fish is... Uh, very closely aligned to what are described in other parts of the Bible, like in Job and in the Psalms, as these great sea creatures of old, the Leviathan, the behemoth, which I think are real creatures. Um, there are there are monsters that are described of in the Bible that there's really no indication to me uh, when I read the, that those sections of the Bible that God is being metaphorical and or poetic. And people just say, oh, well, that because those don't exist uh, scientifically today, then those those things are uh, those things weren't real. That's just po- poetry. Um, and I don't I don't really buy that. I think that these sea creatures did exist um, and that God had control over them. And that so then the other funny thing, the reason I was talking about dinosaurs is that the other funny thing to me is that Christians are so hesitant to say that, like, Leviathan were a real creature. But then we just. People just believe uh, these paleontologists whenever they say that there were like these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of species of these different dinosaurs out there. And all they're going on is like a few – like some bones they found that they just like puzzle piece together. I mean this is literally what paleontology is. Um, and I, I know it's like – it's more complex than that. 
pastor, but um, I I just don't. Uh, Yeah, and yeah, when you, they reconstruct these things, it's like, I mean, I have no problem saying that there were some old monsters, you can call them dinosaurs if you want, whatever, uh, that existed, you know, pre- before the flood that that no longer exist or um, that, uh, you know, fell out, just went extinct at some point in time, but, and and I think the Leviathan and the Behemoth are part of that, <laughs> but, uh, you know. When you kind of compare those things, it's like, well, I'm just saying these couple of animals that are actually talked about in the scriptures that we have a historical record of because the Bibles are the Bible is history uh, versus like science, these scientist machinations of of like little bones that they found and put together. Um, <laughs> I think I'd actually rather just stick with the Bible. So. You know Mm-hmm. In both Chicago and Houston, and they had this huge, this huge T-Rex yeah. skeleton. Yeah. But when you get on the scaffold and you get where you can see it, it really looks like a mosaic. It looks like somebody has taken bunches of tiny pieces and cobbled them together with mortar. And it really, so you're, so you're like, there's no real. There's a few bones that are whole bones. The rest of them are just this kind of pieces together. Yeah. You know, glued together. Yeah. So I. You could have made anything out of that. So anyway, needless to say, um, I'm not like totally bought into the whole dinosaur narrative, uh, which is fine. Uh, I mean, if I, I again, I have no problem saying there were there have been monsters that have gone extinct, um, but. There are biblical monsters like this great fish, and and the the other monsters uh, in the Bible that also exist uh, in history. And so we should just take God at His word and not try and and have to prove everything scientifically. Okay. Uh, so back to the story. He's in the fish three days and three nights. Um, does someone have uh, Matthew 12? And uh, I was gonna get, I forgot, I forgot my Bible in my office here. Um, can can someone read Matthew 12 verse 38 and then just read for a couple verses? I'll tell you when to stop. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, "Teacher, we want to see a sign from you." Keep going. Yeah, keep going. Answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given. It except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. That's good. Okay. Uh, so this is Jesus' reference to the book of Jonah, Matthew 12. And uh, a couple things there. First of all, the main thing that Jesus focuses on is that, um, and, and I love, Jesus always does this to the Pharisees, that they say, we need a sign that you're the, that you're the real Messiah. Well, 
they shouldn't because the Old Testament is Christian. And everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And they have the Old Testament and they're ignoring it. And so that that's his point is that I've already prophesied my death and resurrection. Just read Jonah, right? Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And then he came out again. And uh, same thing's going to happen to me. You have the sign. There, there you go. Um, and, and of course, there's, you know, there's plenty of other things in the Old Testament he could have pointed to. But he takes this and then he says, uh, and then look at Nineveh. And, and again, this is the, the preaching of the law. That, and he's he's preaching to the this uh, the Jewish, uh, the Pharisees, which are basically a you know a heretical Jewish sect, uh, a heretical Christian sect, um, of of the time in Jerusalem, and uh, he says to them, you know, and and this goes along with all his prophecies about about uh, the fall of uh, Jerusalem in in 70 A.D. that Look, you you who've denied me, right? You Pharisees, you Sadducees, you 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 wicked uh, people who have denied me, who should know me. Uh, the people of Nineveh, who were not good people, they were, and they were they uh, they're not they're not even of Jew, they're not of Jewish descent, right? They're um, I mean there were there were Jews there, but um, there were even Gentiles. I'm sure there were Gentiles in this this place too. That. Uh, they repented at Jonah's preaching, and so they're going to have eternal life. But you guys aren't even repenting, even though the Messiah is standing right in front of you, teaching you. Um, and so uh, it's it's a pretty amazing statement that Jesus makes there about Jonah, that um, the his death and resurrection is already there in the Old Testament, ready ready to be fulfilled, and that the preaching of his of the law and the preaching of his death and resurrection. <clears throat> is what is necessary for salvation. Um, and then we get this great salvation prayer from Jonah. So after Jonah is this kind of um, image or type of Christ, then he, and he comes out, uh, he prays this prayer of salvation, uh, which is uh, a wonderful prayer. So um, it's all of Jonah chapter 2, I believe. And I have a, a summary version of it here. I, I am cast out of your sight, but I will look again toward your holy temple. I know that you have brought my life away from corruption. O Lord, my God, I will sacrifice to you with thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Um, so this is the cycle of repentance and faith that when Jonah repents and receives forgiveness, right? He's been the, – the law has made him – that he, he's gone into death, right? That, and this is what the preaching of the law comes down to. You're going to die, right? Um, it's always easy to preach the law at a funeral because you have it right in front of you, right? Uh, look, the guy's dead. You're going to die too. What's going to happen? Right? That's the law. And Jonah dies here. He's cast into the sea, right? And the Lord brings him up uh, to save him from that. And, so that, and that's the gospel. Um, and so when when that happens, when he repents from hearing the law and receives the gospel, um, then he sings this prayer of faith. And uh, I guess one one note, one practical note on that, and I'm, I'm about out of time, um, 
is in the Easter Vigil. Uh, we read, so on, if, if you've been to the Easter Vigil, I think, I think most of you have, um, we read a bunch of Old Testament stories that are kind of the history of salvation um, or a summary of the history of salvation. And the, the Song of Jonah is one of them, or the, the Jonah, Jonah is one of them. And um, it's traditional uh, that one of the things you can sing as a hymn during the Easter Vigil is the Song of Jonah. So in our hymnal, we have a musical version of the Song of Jonah. It's really unfamiliar, so it's not um, easy to sing. But uh, so we're, pro- we're probably never going to do it. <laughs> but uh, that we do have it in, in our hymnal. I can show it to you if you want. There is a musical version of the Song of Jonah that that's it's a great hymn to sing. So uh, anyway, that's. Um, Oh, and I'll just leave on this. So then the Lord gave a command to the fish, uh, and it vomited Jonah out on the shore. So this is the story going on with the story. And um, I love that, that the you see here, one of the things Jonah also teaches is God's sovereignty. That um, the Lord is in control, and the power of the word. That, And we'll get this also when Jonah preaches the word, but... The Lord simply commands, and then it happens, right? His word is powerful. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the shore. And and that kind of goes back to that science stuff. Is like we don't have to scientifically explain this. The Lord commanded it, and it was so, right? And that and that goes back to the doctrine of creation, right? So, God, you know, if we believe God created the entire world and everything in it and sustains it, then sure enough, He can cause a fish to do this right he's the one who created it so um can can the uh, it reminds me of jeremiah right can the uh can the clay say to its uh maker to its molder um how's that go you know what verse i'm talking about uh can the clay say to its potter uh I can't remember how that goes. But the, the idea is that God's the potter, we're the clay, and uh, he controls everything, right? It's not up to us to tell him what he can and can't do. All right. We'll, uh, we'll leave off on that. Any final questions or comments? We'll finish the rest of uh, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, so we finished uh, Israel's kings. And uh, now we're looking at the prophets of Israel. So uh, we did Elijah and Elisha, and now and now Jonah is one of the other prophets. We'll do Obadiah as well. Um, there's not too many other prophets in Israel. Uh, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Obadiah goes back and forth in the northern and southern kingdoms, so we might do him with the uh, the southern kingdom. All right, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your wonderful and, and bountiful gifts that you have given us. We uh, thank you for creating this world and everything in it and having dominion over it. Uh, we pray that you would conform our lives to your will. And that we would repent of our sin and come to faith, a strong faith 
in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. We pray that you would enliven our worship today with the fire of your Spirit, that people may hear and that they may digest your holy word for their lives. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.